Let's take our Bibles tonight, please, and we're turning to the last book of the Bible, and it's Revelation then, chapter 21, the 21st chapter of the book of the Revelation, and we're going to read together from that chapter from the very first verse, and then we'll read some verses towards the end of the chapter as well. So if you have a Bible there, Revelation 21, reading from verse number 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John is on the Isle of Patmos, the beloved disciple, the apostle of love, and the Lord has granted him some blessed experiences as he sees things yet to come. And he says in Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven And the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then we'll go down to verse 22 of the same chapter. Verse 22. Revelation 21, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we'll end at verse 27, this blessed reading of God's precious and inspired word. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord earnestly. And let's pray even for those of us who know and love the Lord, that the Lord will give us a greater appreciation of things eternal, that our lives might impact this earth below. And pray that the Lord will speak to the hearts of those who are lost. Heaven is a reality. Hell is a reality. And praise God, salvation is a reality. So pray that the Spirit of God will move. 
Everlasting Father, eternal God, we come again to Thee in the Saviour's name. Thank Thee, Lord, for this precious book that Thou hast given. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we pray now in the Saviour's name that the Spirit of God will come and open all of our hearts afresh to receive with meekness the engrafted Word that is able to save the soul. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that every believer might be built up and drawn afresh to the Savior's feet. Remember some tonight, O God, who do not know the Lord, still in their sins, still lost, still in the broad road. O God, we pray in the Savior's precious name, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that I will send the Holy Spirit and grant tonight that there might be great blessing here in this very house, and that honor, praise, and glory will be brought to the Savior's name. Lord, hide the preacher behind the cross. Grant, O God, that Christ will be exalted, and that all things will dovetail together for thy glory. Hear and answer prayer, and make this a blessed time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure tonight you've all heard that old statement that people threw about so carelessly. That maybe such an individual is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use. Too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use. Can I say tonight, I couldn't disagree more. I believe tonight that so many, even church-going people, are so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly use. So worldly-minded that they're of no eternal use perhaps at all. Because the reality is tonight that the people who have most affected life on this earth in a positive sense are those people who have lived in light of eternity, lived to the glory of God, recognizing that this world is not our final home and they have sought under God to be the very best that they can be for God, to live a God-honoring life, to reach people with the message of the cross, and to endeavor to bring people to know the Savior. We must live tonight with eternity's values in view. In the Sermon on the Mount, as the Lord Jesus Christ had just commenced His earthly ministry, right about the middle of that sermon, the Savior said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there shall your hearts be also. Living in light of eternity, living with heaven's values in view. That's the great calling of God in the life of a Christian. And that's the great challenge as well. To those who do not know the Lord tonight, where is your treasure? 100 years from tonight, will the things that you are presently living for, will they be worth anything five minutes after you die? Over the last number of weeks, we've been thinking about some of the great questions that we might have regarding heaven. Who goes to heaven? the inhabitants of heaven, those who are washed in the Lamb's blood, those who are wedded as the Lamb's bride, and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book. 
the inhabitants of heaven. Then last Lord's Day evening, we considered what will heaven be like? And we thought about the architecture of heaven. And we reminded ourselves that heaven is described as a kingdom. Heaven is described as a country. The Word of God says that heaven is described as well as a city. And we considered all of these Scripture truths together, building layer upon layer. And we discovered that heaven is not a small place. But heaven, as we read about it in the Bible, and we use the word heaven in a general term, heaven is like a recreated universe. And the city of God and the throne of God right there at the very center. And tonight we want to ask another question about heaven. What sort of things will be in heaven? The attractiveness of heaven. You know, as we read the Word of God and we read the descriptions that the Bible gives us about heaven, there's an attractiveness about heaven. There's an allurement about heaven. We cannot see it tonight. We cannot fathom it. We cannot even begin to picture what heaven must be like. But surely, whenever we consider the Word of God and some of the things that the Bible says will be in heaven, certainly heaven is an attractive place. And there's something that draws the heart of the believer and weans the heart of the believer from this world and gives them a desire to live in light of the reality of the world to come. Mary Slessor was a Scottish missionary. She hailed from the city of Aberdeen. She spent the majority of her missionary life and service in Nigeria. And she was there for a long time without furlough. And then news began to filter through that some of her family members had passed away. And she was approaching the end of her service for God on this earth. And she was able to testify, Heaven is now nearer to me than Britain. Heaven is now nearer to me than Britain. Notice that she did not say, Heaven is nearer to me now than home. She recognized that her home was in heaven. And friends, tonight, those of us that are saved, we're all getting a little bit closer day by day to heaven. And the Lord, I believe, day by day, as we consider Christ and study the Word of God and look at this world around us, surely like the Apostle Paul, we have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And we're going to think tonight for a little while about this great subject, what will be in heaven, the attractiveness of heaven. As we have read tonight in the Word of God in Revelation chapter 21, John the great apostle, as the Lord has opened heaven to his view, and he sees things by his own confession, things which must be hereafter, he describes heaven, first of all, in Revelation 21, in negative terms. So we're going to think tonight for a little while about the things that will not be in heaven. It's very difficult for us tonight to really conceive of the glories of heaven because the Apostle Paul said that the eye hath not seen, neither hath the ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. There are so many things tonight that we will enjoy in heaven that we can't even begin to conceive of. Things that are indescribable. Whenever Paul was caught up into paradise, into the third heaven, 
He spoke about things that are not lawful for me to mention, because we certainly wouldn't understand them. And I believe tonight in part that is why the Apostle John, as he describes heaven and the celestial city, he describes it in negative terms because we just can't really take in. We just can't really conceive of the things that will be in heaven because there are many things I believe that God has prepared for us that we will never have known anything of in this world below. But we do know according to the book of Hebrews that certainly heaven is better than the very best that we've ever experienced in this world. So the Bible explains much of heaven by the things that won't be in heaven. You'll notice in Revelation 21, verse number 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven, the first earth, were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now that really indicates a literal sea of water. Because we, we considered last Lord's Day evening uh, about the sea of glass or the sea of crystal that lies before the throne in heaven. And that speaks to us tonight of absolute peace and serenity and beauty and glory, reflecting the glory of the one that sits upon the throne in heaven. But as far as the seas that we would see and are familiar with are concerned, there is no such sea in heaven. Did you ever read the Word of God, especially the Gospels, and so much that happened, for example, on the Sea of Galilee? was unpleasant for the disciples. Oftentimes they experienced storms in the sea. Oftentimes they experienced fear and trepidation. Sometimes whenever they were on the sea, their faith was unsettled and they were filled with doubts and they were filled with fears. Well, dear friends, there's going to be no such sea in heaven. There'll be no storms in heaven. There'll be no things in heaven to unsettle us and to make us afraid. Heaven is a place where there's no adversity. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the psalmist said, The Lord delivers him out of them all. And our ultimate deliverance from the afflictions of life will come whenever we arrive in heaven itself. No more sea in heaven. The sea reminds us of the storms of life. But the sea also reminds us of separation. Many of you tonight have loved ones that live across from the mainland or maybe across the Atlantic and the Americas or maybe even in Australia or somewhere in the southern hemisphere and you're separated from them by the sea. And sometimes with the passing of years, traveling great distances is very difficult. But there's no such sea in heaven. No storms in heaven. And furthermore, in heaven, there's no more separation. Isn't it lovely to think that someday loved ones who have gone on before will no longer be separated from them, but we'll be united with them in glory around the throne of the Lamb. No sea in heaven. Then verse number four, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No tears in heaven, in this world of ours. One of the first things that we do whenever we're just born into this world is we begin to shed a few tears. And oftentimes life progresses and we shed tear upon tear upon tear. Some of you have shed more tears than others. But tears are something that is a common denominator in the human race. 
All of us tonight have shed tears, and if the Lord spares us for any reasonable length of time after tonight, it is almost certain, if the Lord tarries, that we haven't shed our last tear this side of heaven. The Bible speaks about the blessed man in Psalm 84, the man that maketh the Lord his trust, whose strength is in the Lord who passing through the valley of Baca makes it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. And the valley of Baca there could be translated the valley of weeping. This world of ours is oftentimes a veil of tears. Some of you have probably shed tears in the last week. Some have maybe even shed tears this very day. Some of us may shed tears tomorrow or in the week to come. Tears are a universal language. Tears are a language that God understands. In fact, the shortest verse in the Bible makes mention of the Lord's tears. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And where did he weep? He wept at the very grave of Lazarus. As he looked at Mary and Martha and their family and their friends and their loved ones and he saw the destruction that sin has brought into this world and bringing death with it. And the Bible says that God notes all of our tears. In the book of Psalms in chapter 56 and verse number 8, the psalmist said, Lord, thou tellest my wanderings. In other words, Lord, you know every step that I take in life. Every twist and every turn, every mountain and every valley, you know the way that I take. Like, tell us my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? I believe tonight that tears that are shed in time will sparkle as jewels someday in God's eternity. And it says here that the Lord God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? That the Lord himself will be the one who wipes away the tears from the eyes of his people. Can you remember whenever you were young, maybe a, you were a little boy or a little girl running about and you fell and you hurt yourself and the father or a mother or a grandparent came with a handkerchief and they set you on their knee and they wiped away those tears and they threw their arms around you. What comfort that brought. And there's coming a day whenever God himself shall wipe away the tears from off our eyes. Verse 4 also says, Neither shall there, there shall be no more death. Tears are also often shed as a result of death. Why is there no death in heaven? Because heaven is Emmanuel's land. And the Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And death cannot reign in the presence of Christ. I think it's interesting that on the cross crucified between two thieves. The Lord Jesus was the first one to die. He bowed his head and he yielded up the ghost and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He was the first one to die because death cannot reign in the presence of Christ. Lazarus was dead before the Lord got there because death cannot reign in the presence of Christ. No death in heaven. No undertakers in heaven. No funerals in heaven. Neither shall there be any more death. Verse number four as well. Neither sorrow. What must heaven be like? This world of ours is filled with sorrow. You know the first time that sorrow is mentioned in the Bible? 
is just after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, just after Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and broke that covenant of works, sin entered into the world and sin entered into their hearts and death entered into the world by sin. The Word of God is very clear tonight that there was a literal first man in the garden called Adam. Jesus Christ our Lord is the last Adam. So there had to be a first Adam. And the first Adam failed in keeping his covenant. Jesus Christ came into this world as the second man or the last Adam and fulfilled the covenant of works completely. But that first Adam transgressed the law of God and ate of the forbidden fruit. And the result of that was spiritual death followed by sorrow. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number, uh, where is it? Verse number 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed, remember that, is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it, all the days of thy life, thorns and thistles, shall it bring forth unto thee, and I shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. And so it goes on. But three times in two verses, the Word of God mentions sorrow. And all of the sorrows that we experience in this world, directly or indirectly, are the results of sin. But can you imagine tonight living without sorrow? Can you imagine living for even one year without ever feeling sorrow or sadness, without ever feeling downcast or discouraged? Well, friends, tonight there are no sorrows in heaven. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Earth has got no sorrow that heaven cannot he. Look again at verse number four, neither sorrow nor crying, nor crying. Maybe as a result of tumult or pain or sorrow, maybe as a result of grief or bereavement, no crying in heaven. Must be an amazing thing, no crying in heaven. There's something about hearing a heart cry. Did you ever see some of those images last week of the people out there in Turkey and Syria standing amongst the ruin and the rubble and they had lost absolutely everything, their homes, their belongings. Some had lost their entire families and their friends and they're crying out with sorrow, weeping and wailing. Seems that there's absolutely no hope at all. Tell you your heart goes out whenever you see that sort of thing. And it has to strike a chord within our hearts. Look at our world. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain right until this present time. But the new heavens and the new earth will usher in a new creation where indwelleth righteousness. And the recreated heavens and earth will be absolutely perfect and there'll be no crying. And then it concludes out, verse number four, neither shall there be any more pain. Now I believe tonight that there's a certain level of blessing in pain. We don't enjoy pain. But the psalmist said, 
it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. He says, I know that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. You know what pain in this world is like? It's like a red warning light. You're driving in your car and the red warning light comes on. It indicates that there is something wrong and something needs to be seen to. I remember watching a documentary one night many years ago on television about a particular medical condition where people didn't have the ability to feel pain. And I thought, well, that must be a wonderful thing never to be able to feel pain. But it turned out the opposite was the case. Infections could set into their bodies, but they didn't feel sickness or pain, so they didn't know that something was wrong with them. They could cut themselves or burn themselves, and the cuts and burns could turn septic, but they didn't feel any pain, so they didn't think there was anything wrong. They couldn't experience what it was to have a toothache, and nobody enjoys toothache or earache or headache. But sometimes pain is a reminder that something is wrong. And if there was no pain or no suffering in this world, we would never maybe ask the question, what is wrong? And their underlying problem again is sin. Physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual pain in this world is an indicator that something is radically wrong. And we need to ask, what's wrong with this world of ours? But there will be no pain in heaven. We live in a world that is steeped in pain. But there will be no pain in heaven. Look at verse 22. John goes on to say, and he's evidently looking very closely, and he says, I saw no temple therein. Now, what was the significance of the temple in Bible times? It was a place where sacrifice was offered for sins. And there's no need for a temple in heaven because our Savior has offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's entered into heaven itself for us by virtue and with his own precious blood. And there's no more sacrifice for sins. That's why we resolutely disagree with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church whenever it comes to the Mass. That they are re-offering or re-sacrificing the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, it flies in the face of God's Word. On the cross, the Savior said, It is finished. And the great veil of the temple was rent in twain from the very top to the bottom, indicating that God had opened a way through the sacrifice of His Son. And there's no more sacrifice for sins. And furthermore, in Old Testament Scriptures, the temple of God in Jerusalem was the dwelling place of God on earth. In behind that veil and the holiest of all, the Shekinah glory filled the place whenever God came and dwelt in the midst of His people. But there's no need for such a temple in heaven because His glory will not be confined. His glory will fill the celestial city. His glory will fill the heavenly country. His glory will fill the kingdom of heaven. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with the very glory of God. And it goes on to say in verse number 23, And the city had no need of the sun. Why is that? It's because the Lord Himself is the source of all light. 
Chapter 22 and verse 5 of Revelation said, There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 21, 23 says, The glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There will be no darkness in heaven. There will be no created light in heaven. The glory of God will lighten the city, and His glory will shine right across the new heavens and the new earth. It's remarkable whenever you think of it. The glory of heaven. No need for physical created light. There will be no darkness in heaven. It says in verse number 23 as well, there will be no moon in the heavens, no need of the sun, neither of the moon. Now, did you know tonight that the moon serves to measure time? Back there in the first book of the Bible, again, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, it says in verse number 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights. The greater to light, uh, greater light to rule by day, and the lesser light to rule by night. And he said that the morning and the evening, that's, that's what it is. So we know today that whenever the Word of God speaks about these days of creation, he's speaking about physical days. Let them be for seasons, for days, and for years. The greater light to rule by day, the lesser light to rule by night. And so the Bible, I believe, is very, very clear that these days of creation are literal 24-hour days. And the sun and the moon were given not only for light, but also to govern time. But in heaven, there's no need for the moon because there's no time in heaven. It's also the moon that causes the tides to rise and fall. If you're in the sea fishing and you want to fish on a high tide, you'll find a, a day in the calendar month whenever the moon is at its fullest and you'll get a nice high tide. The moon has a gravitational pull towards it and it causes the seas to rise and fall in the tides. But there's no sea in heaven, no time, no tides in heaven. Everything's constant and everything's perfect. Verse 25 of Revelation 21 says, There shall be no night there. Now, night can be hard, can't it? Do you ever notice that most of the worrying that you do, you do it at night? If you can't sleep and you're lying in your bed and you're there alone in the darkness and there's no distractions, and you're tired and you're weary and you're drifting in and out of sleep, Oftentimes the mind can be agitated and filled with worry. But there's no night in heaven. No worry. No loneliness. Like the old paraphrase says, based on Hosea chapter 6, the first four verses, speaking of life on this earth as it presently is, long hath the night of sorrow reigned. The dawn shall bring us light. God shall appear and we shall rise with gladness in His sight. You'll notice verse number 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. 
There will be no defilement in heaven, no defilement within us, and no defilement around us. We will be absolutely perfect whenever we get to heaven. Sometimes people ask me, do you believe in sinless perfection? And I say to them, yes, I do, absolutely. But not until we see the Savior face to face. I believe tonight that there's a place of sinless perfection for every believer. As the hymn writer said, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And that's something that the Christian longs for. To be free from sin and free from infirmity and be able to live to the absolute full glory of our God. No defilement within us and no defilement all around us. Nothing abominable in God's sight. No sin in heaven. No lies. No theft. No pride. No self-righteousness. No perversion. No immorality. Everybody in heaven will be absolutely perfect and be live in a place where there's no defilement. Verse 27 again, Neither whatsoever worketh abomination. Many things in this world are abominable to us. Many things in this world are abominable to Almighty God. The Word of God says, in fact, in the last days about the abomination of desolation, standing as it were in the holy place. But there will be no abomination in heaven. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And there will be no abomination in heaven. Verse 27 as well, no lies in heaven. Can you imagine living in a world without lies? I think we're living in a generation where lies have become so acceptable. So many now make a career out of being dishonest. And so many make promises of what they're going to do. And we feel so often that people are being dishonest with us and people are lying to us. There'll be no lies in heaven. And there'll be nobody that makes a lie found in heaven either. No false gospels in heaven. And then to conclude it all, it says in chapter 22 and verse number 3, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. No curse in heaven. All of the things that we have mentioned previously are all the results of the curse on this earth. But Jesus Christ took our guilt and took the curse for us upon a cross and has removed the curse and the sting of sin itself. Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, this leaves you in a very dangerous place. Because you realize tonight that if there's no sin or defilement or lies or deceitfulness in heaven, where does that leave you? Because if we're honest tonight, the Bible says we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Where does that leave you? Is it not time you could write with God? Is it not time tonight that you came to the cross? That you put your faith and trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? 
The Apostle John is very clear whenever we look at verse 8 of chapter 21. And incidentally, it's one of those verses that is always left out, conveniently left out at funeral services. Chances are, if you go to a funeral service, they'll either read Psalm 23, John 14, Revelation 21. And whenever they read Revelation 21, they'll read the first seven verses, but they will leave out verse number 8. And verse number 8 says, But the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And just to make it clear, the Apostle Paul as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9 said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. In other words, you've been transformed and delivered and redeemed and set free and you're no longer living new sorts of lifestyles. Such were some of you, but you're washed and sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And again, Paul, as he wrote to the church at Galatia, he said the same thing to them in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 5, For this ye know, that no whoremonger or unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And whenever we read verses like that, it can cause us to tremble. Because we know that these things are in our hearts. That's why we need a Savior. That's why the Son of God came to come into this world and live a sinless life. Go to a cross and die an atoning death. And then physically, literally, visibly, gloriously rise from the grave for our justification. The Bible says He's ascended into heaven itself. And he's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Can I ask you tonight, are you ready for heaven? Time is gone. I wanted to look at some of the positive aspects of heaven, but friends, time is gone. But you're here tonight. You're under the sound of God's word. Maybe God has been challenging your heart recently. Others have got right with God in recent days. Others have trusted Christ that you know and love. 
But friend, what about you? Is it well with your soul? Are you right for heaven tonight? If this was your last night on earth, where would you be? Where would you be tomorrow? Make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you know the Lord. He's willing and ready and able to save. If we can help you at all, make that need known, but make sure you're right for heaven and home.